Hello, you're listening to a December edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. Today we're talking trees in towns and cities and plants with Christmas pizzazz. To glitter or not to glitter? That is the question. But first, wildlife in winter. With the cold weather truly upon us, what can gardeners do now to protect the birds and creatures we love during the cold and hungry weeks ahead? Hello, I'm Kate Bradbury and I'm a garden writer specialising in wildlife gardening. With winter coming up, it's a really good idea to create a little log pile or a leaf pile in your garden, which will provide a habitat for things like hedgehogs and small mammals and frogs, amphibians, etc., to hibernate in over winter. What not to do, I would urge people not to empty their compost bins at this time as potentially you could be disturbing hibernating wildlife in there. Do wait until spring, but don't leave it too late in spring as then other species might have come into nests. So April is the best time to empty, turn, whatever you want to do to your compost bin. It's a really good time of year to dig a pond because the soil is nice and moist and because it rains a lot. So you can just dig the pond, line it, make it all lovely and then the rains come. And then in spring, of course, all of the plants that you've planted around the pond will then grow and be nice and lush. And it's a really good time to dig a pond. Do make sure when you dig your pond that it's got very shallow edges because potentially hedgehogs can fall into the pond and drown. They are actually good at swimming, but they get tired very quickly. I have found hedgehogs drowned in ponds and it's a really horrible thing to see. So do make sure when you dig your pond, it's got a very shallow edge. Your pond doesn't need to be any deeper than 30 centimetres. You can have a very shallow pond. It doesn't take very much time at all to dig. And that provides a fantastic habitat for frogs, in particular for the aquatic larvae of dragonflies and damselflies. Provides a space for birds to bathe and drink from and also hedgehogs and just having those shallow edges just make sure that hedgehogs can enter and exit easily without any potential catastrophes. If you're clearing your borders I would caution you to if you can just clear around the edges and then leave the central part because if the central part dies down into itself and that effectively creates a nice winter duvet for wildlife that's sheltering beneath it. It's not a huge problem for your border. As these plants die down, they disappear into the soil eventually. So it's not going to disturb plants from growing up again in spring. Seed heads in particular that I would encourage people to leave standing include teasels, which if you're lucky you might get goldfinches coming to feast from and they come in huge flocks, huge chattering flocks in sort of January, February, and they come and take the teasel seeds out of the seed heads, which is wonderful to see. Poppy seed heads, as they sort of disintegrate, they leave these really beautiful structures. And ladybirds, seven spot ladybirds, really like to just squeeze in these um, poppy seed heads, which is really lovely to see as well. Lavender seeds are, are very popular with house sparrows. So you may get house sparrows coming in and feasting on your lavender seeds, cut them down in spring rather than at the end of summer. Sunflower seeds, they're readily taken by tits and small mammals. With sunflowers, you can either leave them standing or you can take the head off and pop it on a bird table. Just make sure it's dry so it doesn't rot. I mean, I've seen a tiny little field mouse climb up this huge sunflower stem and then nibble off the head of the stem and it fell to the ground and then it just sort of crammed all of these seeds into its mouth and kept running away and going back and obviously caching these seeds, which is really lovely to see. So whether you leave the seed head standing or not, you may find that some other creature comes along and takes it off for you. This Christmas, if you want to leave food out for the birds, leave them grated cheese, small amounts of cake crumbs, but not too much and preferably not very salty. 
cooked rice, again, not salty. Avoid things like desiccated coconut, avoid sultanas, but do leave them out little crumbs and scraps of food and bacon rind and things like that. Wildlife gardening writer Kate Bradbury. Now, do you pimp up your festive plants or prefer them plain as nature intended? Each Christmas, the shelves at many garden centres are filled with plants given a lick of paint, glitter or even injected with dye to give them a festive look. These novelties seem to firmly divide opinion between gardeners. Are they harmless fun or are they an offence to nature? This month, the RHS magazine for members, The Garden, decided to air both sides of the debate in its December issue. The editorial team also decided to canvas gardeners' views on the topic of decorative Christmas plants on social media. They received an impassioned response. I'm Phil Clayton. I'm the uh, deputy editor of The Garden magazine. And I'm Melissa Mabbitt. I am a writer here on The Garden magazine. So you may have noticed in the shops these novelty plants starting to appear. Christmas is the prime time for their arrival. When I say novelty plants, I'm talking about painted or glittered succulents, sprayed heathers, orchids with puce blue flowers, all these remarkable-looking creations that you see on the shelves in garden centres, but it's often in supermarkets, isn't it? I think the big um, one at the moment is, I think, echeverries that have been completely dipped in white paint and then splattered all over with little splashes of paint, so very colourful. So we ran a little article about these in the Garden magazine in December. It was a debate between myself and Anne Swithenbank. It's already sparked off quite a few interesting mm. comments. So what we do is we tend to put out teasers for the contents of the garden every month on social media and when we did it this month we included this debate as part of our tease for the garden and it did spark off quite a lot of discussion mostly very angry people or people who actually were really almost quite affronted by it really should we say insulted almost I think by Mm -hmm. these things definitely a crime against horticulture I'm reading here not for me almost as bad as artificial grass you can't improve on nature I hate to see them Plants and flowers bring their own beauty. They don't need enhancement. Mm. There's one here. It says, it breaks my heart every time I see plants dyed or sprinkled with glitter or decorated with googly eyes. And I think it's interesting because that is the initial reaction that many people who love plants would have to... to... It's horror, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is initial, yeah. Gilding mm. the lily. Yeah. <laughs> in the worst Why is it possible necessary? way. Why is it necessary? That's initially what my reaction, when I first started seeing them, I just thought, this plant is going to die. What a waste. It's the waste of it. And Well, that's the first interesting point, mm. isn't it, really? Do they die? Does it finish them off after they flower? From what I understand, no, it doesn't. Mm. Uh, last year, when we took the photographs of the sprayed succulents, we've kept the plants and all of them are still alive. They're not perhaps the best grade A specimens, but they're all growing away quite happily now. I was amazed to find that out. I was, mm. I, I genuinely thought that would be a death sentence to yeah. the plant. But as you're saying, they're actually just normally just food dyes that kind of wash off relatively quickly and they don't do any harm to the plant. And things like echeveras are really tough plants and they can just grow away from the paint. Seems, it seems like that. Mm. The blue orchid that we photographed is not flowering, but it's perfectly healthy. Mm. There's a slight blue tinge to the leaves, <laughs> uh, but it's alive. So I don't think it does necessarily kill them. And even if it did kill them, does that matter? Are these not just another crop like mm. carrots or yeah. cauliflowers Bedding that you plants. would kill? Bedding yeah. plants. Mm-hmm. It, 
Is it really any different? That's the thing. And like when you really think about it, you think, well, there's never any furore about Christmas trees. I mean, the amount <laughs> of time, energy that's gone into growing a Christmas tree, cut it down, stick it in your house, and then it mostly gets binned. So can you really complain about echeveris or some sprayed heathers going in the bin afterwards? I think horticulture as an industry, there is a lot of wastage, and that is just part of the economics of the industry. And you, you may or may not disagree with that. But if you buy a poinsettia for your house at Christmas, then you can't really criticise people who are buying a sprayed echeveria. Isn't it very similar? Well, it's a, it is. And obviously the inputs for the coincities are quite high. The heating and the light mm. required to bring them. It's all down to taste. I can understand people's initial revulsion really at it because it is also it's quite a new thing. I think most yeah. people would look at a sprayed heather and be like, oh, well, I don't like that, but ho-hum. But they've been around a long time. The sprayed cacti, echeverias are quite a new thing. And I think it's treading on people's toes because it's new and a little bit seems a bit extra wrong, maybe. But, you know, people will get used to them. If And, and some people are buying them because they continue to sell them. Somebody's buying them. I find the, the sprayed heathers very difficult. Mm. They do seem to die and they are for use outside. Mm. I can't imagine where they look good. If it's in yeah. a pot plant in the house, that's one thing because it's a decoration for your table. If it's to be put outside in a pot, do you really want a bright yellow or a bright blue heather? Yeah. And they do die, those. Yeah. And yet they're there every year after year. So if you want to go down the natural plant route at Christmas, like a hippiastrum, those big bulbs of the bright trumpet-shaped flowers, which are quite remarkable when they do bloom, and mm. the bigger the bulb, the more flowers you get. You can get two, even three spikes from a single bulb. And if you look after them, they flower year after year, especially if you've got a conservatory or a really bright sunny window. So, mm -hmm. so I would always go with one of those. Yeah. Or even a pot azalea. I quite like pot azaleas. They've got a very cool bathroom. Yeah. They do really well there on the windowsill. They flower for months and months and months. And I can keep those from year mm. to year as well. So hippiastrums are related to amaryllis, but they are two separate plants. Amaryllis are hardy plants, which are for the garden. The hippiastrum are generally much more tender and grown indoors. Once they finish flowering, the key thing is to, to remove the dead or faded flower spike to stop it from setting seed. And then you need to feed the plant and keep the leaves growing away as healthily as possible. And you do that for the spring and all the summer. And then in the autumn, it's quite important to give it a period of dry mm. rest. So the leaves will start to wither and die off and you reduce watering and keep it somewhere quite cool, about 10 degrees uh, for six to eight weeks. And then you bring it somewhere into the heat and you start to water and feed again and you should get a new flowering shoot for late autumn mm. Winter time. I don't know if it's also worth noting that the leaves come out at a different time to the yes. flowers. So it flowers first, yes, and then the leaves come out. So it's important to feed it and look after it when the leaves are out, and then don't worry if you get a flower spike and no leaves, or leaves and no flower. But most people will throw those away as well. Yeah, not really very different from glittered yeah. echeveria. I've actually been slightly converted with the ongoing discussions we've had in the office about sprayed plants i've gone from thinking oh no that's abhorrent to oh maybe i'll buy one this year oh my <laughs> so, god yeah I know. <laughs> but the one thing that i will stay away from is i probably glitter because like you've said before phil the, the issue of microplastics yeah. and how that that's possibly the one thing you can say no that isn't something that we should encourage or it's something necessarily good so definitely not the jury's out as to whether the, the glitter is plastic glitter or whether it's edible glitter i have to say the echeveria i had covered in glitter there's no sign of any glitter at the moment it seemed to it will disappear over the summer whether it blew away i don't know uh, or maybe it dissolved but if they could use edible glitter on the plants 
I think that would stop that, that would problem solve that as well. problem yeah mm. if I was going to go for a winter flowering plant indoors that looked really good I'd actually just go for a Christmas cactus they're not really Christmas flowering they tend to be a bit beforehand don't they but yeah that's what I'd go for they're really bright really colorful they have long, almost like scales. And at the end of each long strand of scales, then you'll have a fantastic showy flower in pink or white or red. But anyway, whether you like your plants glittered, painted or au naturel, grow as many as you can. And Christmas is a great time to bring them in the house. And I would just say, actually, if you do see one and you really love it, don't feel really bad. If you're going to have a natural Christmas tree in a poinsettia, you don't need to feel really bad about having a painted, some other kind of painted plant. <laughs> don't feel guilty. <laughs> Phil Clayton and Melissa Mabbitt. You can read Phil's debate with Anne Swivenbank in December's edition of The Garden. This monthly magazine for RHS members is available now and is one of the benefits of membership. If you haven't already, why not join today? Membership also makes a perfect Christmas gift for a garden-loving friend. Links to full details are on the podcast page of the RHS website, rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. You're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist, based here at Vincent Square in London. With the Christmas holidays rapidly approaching, there are even more events and attractions than ever for you to enjoy in our four RHS gardens. At Wisley, as well as at Harlow Carr in Yorkshire and Rosemore in Devon, you can enjoy the glorious glow illuminations, spectacular light installations that bring sparkle and enchantment to dark winter evenings. See our programme page for links to opening times and prices. Meanwhile, at Hyde Hall in Essex, why not come and enjoy a delightful Christmas gift fair from the 8th to the 9th of December with over 60 craftsmen, artists and designer makers, free with normal garden entry. One recent event in London which proved very popular was the RHS Urban Garden Show. This focused on innovative and unusual ideas for gardeners in towns or those with little or no outdoor space. One of the attractions at the show were the guided tree walks, looking at some of the beautiful specimens in the roads around our horticultural halls in Vincent Square in London. These were led by author and tree lover Paul Wood. Paul spoke to us about the history of urban trees and his concerns for their future well-being. When I was very young, I was brought up in Dover, and behind our garden we had a wood which I used to scamper off into and play and find out all about the trees that were growing there. And when I moved to London, I was missing the trees, I suppose, and I discovered that there were all these unusual trees on the streets, and I didn't know what they were. So I spent a lot of time wandering around, looking at them, beginning to work out what these strange trees are, because, as you may or may not know, the trees on our streets are very different to the trees that you might find in our woods, or even the ones that you might find in your garden. So I discovered at the end of my street, I've got a Caucasian wingnut, which is a magnificent tree. And it took me about three years before I was able to work out what it was through looking in various tree books and so on. And from there, it snowballed, really. I started writing a blog about trees, street trees in particular. And from there, I was asked to write a book about it, to which I leapt at the chance since the book was published. I've been doing a lot of talks and walks 
going around various parts of London looking at the street trees that are around. And what we've discovered is that there's an enormous diversity that reflects the city and that it varies tremendously between different parts of the city. So, for instance, if you're in um, Lewisham, Lewisham is very different to, say, neighbouring Southwark. And where I live, which is Islington, has very different trees to other London boroughs. So the tree I just mentioned, the Caucasian wingnut, is a tree which you only find planted on the street really in Islington. The history of street trees, it's quite a modern thing, surprisingly modern. I mean, I think that people have always planted trees in the urban environment where they've lived, but it's quite datable in the sense that the first proper planted street trees that were built into a street that was developed were the ones along the embankment, which can be dated to 1870. And those, of course, were London plains. And since then, it became this thing which everybody had to do. And any street that was being built at that time had street trees planted with it. And that happened not only in London, it became a craze which happened all over the UK. So in other cities like Birmingham, for instance, Manchester, Edinburgh, and then in North America, in New York and Boston and places, street trees were all planted in the later half of the 19th century. But just to sort of go back a little bit further, it was originally something which happened in the continent. So when you think of somewhere like Paris and the Grand Boulevards of Paris and Houseman's redevelopment of Paris, that was where the first street trees were planted and that was where the inspiration for the embankment came. And for many years after that, there were very few species that were used. So it was only in the later 20th century that there started to be many more different species added to the palette of street trees. And now, if you wander around the streets of London in the various boroughs, you'll see some boroughs that were planted more or less recently with more or less different species. So the borough which I always think of as the most exciting is uh, Hackney. I call it the Urban Arboretum. It's a really remarkable and diverse place. The reason it is that is because there were no trees, or there were relatively few street trees, just 20 years ago. And it reflects the increased wealth that has come into the borough, I suppose. So street trees, I think there's a definite correlation between how green your streets are and how wealthy your borough is as well. Lots of cities and lots of different local authorities are doing all sorts of different things with street trees. Manchester has a, quite a lot of exciting things going on. There's a few organisations in Manchester that are planting trees around the city. And in the city centre, they planted a few years ago foxglove trees with its amazing blue flowers, which people in Manchester were suddenly saying, what are these trees in our streets with these blue flowers? That's an interesting example. Historically... Places like Edinburgh is well known for the poplars and elms on its street. But probably the local authority, which is most well known for street trees outside London, and for all the wrong reasons, is Sheffield, where trees are being selected to be cut down from the street tree population, which numbers 39,000. Of that 39,000, 17,500 have been earmarked for the chop. They're saying, we'll cut down the trees and we'll plant saplings. Of course, saplings are much cheaper to maintain than large street trees. And I think that's the root of the problem. It's about how local authorities 
don't have the resources to manage street trees that they once did. And in Sheffield, what happened is that the management of the street trees were outsourced. A profit-making company is obviously looking at ways they can increase their margin. Hopefully, the example of Sheffield will not be repeated by any other local authorities, but we shall wait and see. We will have to really keep our eye on that one, I think. One of the best places, I think, to go and see what a street could look like if those communities really worked in a really fantastic way is Bonington Square in Vauxhall, which was a former squat and it has an amazing community garden there. There's the Harleyford Road community garden as well. But around the streets, a tremendous variety of different trees have been planted and every spare inch has been planted up with all sorts of other plants as well. So particularly in Bonington Square, there's a lot of New Zealand plants. So you get hoherias and you get cordylines and you get pseudopanax, the lancewood, those incredible spear-like trees that go up. And then there's all sorts of vines and Virginia creepers and clematis and other plants which are being trained on these structural trees to make the whole place feel like this incredible green envelope which provides this amazing natural and garden-like environment which is actually a street at the same time. If anybody needs an example of where to go, that's a great place to start to see what the potential of a community getting involved in greening their streets could be like. Paul's book, London Street Trees, A Field Guide to the Urban Forest, is available now. It is also one of the titles discussed in our special RHS Books podcast. We debate the best gardening books of the year, books as gifts for garden-loving friends, and foodie books that discuss delicious ways to cook the produce you grow. 282 ways of salad, anyone? Or 300 ways of potatoes? It's an entertaining listen with some inspiring last-minute gift ideas. It's available to download now. Well, that's all we have time for today, I'm afraid. We'll be back in a fortnight with a look back at 2018, a year in gardening, and we'll look forward to some of the exciting events next year. Until then, from me, Guy Barter, and all the podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.